Well, I'm going to be reading from Psalm 124. And, you know, in those eight verses there. But first I'm going to read, when we read the Psalms, okay, so the Psalms, in, in all the positive value of them, and all that positive energy of the love of God and the purity of his nature, which is light, we look at those Psalms and we read them. But the proper way for us in this dispensation of grace, in this church age that, that God has chosen us to be born and to be located, we look at them from our position. We are to look at them from our position. This simply means that it's extremely vital and it's very essential because if we are going to function in a, on a proper foundation, we must have that foundation built. Psalm 11 verse 3 says, if the foundations shall be, would be moved, what will the righteous do? And in the Hebrew, it really means shaken, shaken. But when we look at these things, when we look at them, in the freshness and in the concentration and the beauty uh, that we have, and that's, that's what preparation, discipline, and concentration gives us. It allows the beauty of the Word of God to flow to us. And it's a, it's a tremendous thing that we can have that and to be able to receive that. But when we look at it, we must remember anything in the Old Covenant, the types, the, uh, all the types, and even the prophecy that is being worked out right now that has been fulfilled in the eternal mind of God, we look at all of that from our position in Christ. It's called positional truth, foundational truth. That is what is so very necessary for the believer, for the untaught, and for those that continue need to need that need to be taught. Salvation has to do in, a, in, in the Gospel of John and the book of Romans, the epistle of Romans. Those uh, have to do with foundation. They begin to touch foundational truth. But really, the ABCs of Christianity, literally the ABCs of Christianity, and I believe, I believe, that's what's going on a lot. God, he's going to redeem the time, but he's bringing believers back to the ABCs. You know what the ABCs are? Once you're born again, it's the epistle to the Ephesians and the epistle of Colossians. That is literally foundational. It's the ABCs. It is the beginning of Christianity, which, unfortunately, because of the enemy and because of what he does, has kept multitudes of those that are Christ from that. And they're just getting it now. And I believe that's what God's doing right now. In these end times right now, I believe he's bringing Christians back. Now, so when we glean from these we know that Christ is, is the fulfillment, has fulfilled every single type being the anti-type. See, for every type, there has to be an anti-type. Christ himself is the anti-type. He's the anti-type. And he has fulfilled already all prophecy. The finished work on the cross makes that crystal clear. He's positioned us in Christ 
positioned us on a foundation, and then on that foundation we are being built up, in Ephesians 2, verse 22, a spiritual house for Christ in Colossians 3 and verse 16 to dwell in. Remember, we've said, and we've been taught in the past, God has to move things out. He has to move things out in our life to make room for Christ in us. In Colossians 1, verse 27, the guarantee, the revelation and manifestation of a glorious future that we're headed to. He has to do all that. So when we look at the Psalms and when we look at all of these things, this is what we see. Now, here I'm going to read a few scriptures and then we'll get into Psalm 128 in those eight verses. This is Romans 15, and, and I'm going to read the first six, chapter, uh, six verses in that chapter. This is Romans 15, verse 1. We then that are strong, what does it mean to be strong? Graced out. Graced out. We have the foundation established in us in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11. It's necessary. Listen, you're going to build a house even before you build a house, the foundation has to be established. That's positional truth in Christ. That's why a lot of Christians struggle because the enemy gets all of us at times in our growth with a lack of teaching or bad teaching. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 23, to be occupied with foolish and unlearned questions. Now, keep that word foolish in, in your mind because we'll address that this, this morning in a very, very specific way. But notice that it says in Romans 15 and verse 1, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. What's an infirmity? Something is lacking and then something has taken its place. When there's not ease or health, then disease, disease or disease moves in. We ought to... Im- to bear the infirmities of the weak. Listen to this. And not to please ourselves. We're going to see what that is this morning. Not to please ourselves. Okay? God wants to comfort us. And, when, and that comfort comes from chastisement in Hebrews 12, 4 to 29. It comes in Proverbs 3, uh, brought out. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. There's beautiful, loving chastisement and growing in grace in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18. And with that, without chastisement, without the scriptures, without learning, without discipline, without humility, we don't experience what is ours positionally in a proper place, in a proper image. We are not to please ourselves. Listen, God comforts us not to make us comfortable in this world, but to make us comforters. And that's going to always involve, in 2 Timothy 2.12 and Romans 8.18, suffering. It's going to involve, in Philippians 1, verse 28 and 29, afflictions, which those afflictions in themselves, in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 3, have been measured by the love and wisdom of God. Long before they ever touched us, in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 15, all things, all things, what? What are all things doing in 2 Corinthians 4? They're for our sake. Why? Because Christ is involved in us with them. 
We never suffer. We are never afflicted when he's not there. Remember in Isaiah 63 in verse 9, as, as the prophet Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And what that simply means there is, is that the whole time that God is disciplining, disciplining and chastising his children, and they're weeping, he weeps with them. Imagine that, having a, a father like that, a God like that, in John 20 and verse 17. And the reason we have that is so incredible, as we'll see this morning. We are not to please ourselves. We are not to please ourselves. When we go to the Word as leaders, as pastors and teachers, we're not going there to please ourselves. Because if we do, it's just simply we will use others to please ourselves. And that's brought out in Ephesians, in Galatians, the sixth chapter, verses 12 through 14. Brings it out clearly, and it's the cross, the living reality of what Christ has accomplished there, that keeps out the flesh and the experience. But boy, when you don't have that positional truth in an experiential way, and I believe multitudes, I do, I believe multitudes in Christianity are being, back, are being brought back to a foundation so that they can be built up and edified, taken away in, in the spiritual sense from the mother's breast and growing teeth so they can chew the strong meat. That's brought out in Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verses 13 to 15. We ought not to please ourselves. Why? Is Christ our life in Colossians 3 and verse 4? Yes. Did he please himself in his human nature that never had a sin nature? No, he didn't. In John 8 verse 29, he always did the things that pleased the Father. He never pleased himself. Not one time. He, he, his thought was on his Father. In that oneness that they had and that he continually, Christ, the whole time he walked the face of the earth was what he expressed in John 10.30. And he said it as a man, but God, the God-man. I and the Father are one. And of course, a oneness in John 1 and verse 18 that only deity could be. But speaking it from his humanity, this brings in a foundational truth. Our foundational truth. That's why it says in Colossians 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Let it, let. That has to do with the will. That has to do with submission. Not to please ourselves. Verse 2, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written in Psalm 69 and verse 9, the reproaches of them that reproached me, the reproaches of them that reproached you, O Father, fell to my account. They fell on me. Think, think about that. The next time that a brother in Christ, or, or a woman, a man or a woman in Christ, offends one another. I want us to remember that. What would keep out the offense in Psalm 119, 165? Well, it would be great peace. Who's the great peace? In Ephesians 2 and verse 14, it's Christ. He is our great peace. That keeps the offense 
from coming. It also goes into forgiveness in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. We need to forgive one another and not be ignorant of a device. A device is something the enemy uses to cause, to come in between believers, to come in between them. Here is verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. I wish the, the, the uh, hyper-dispensationalists could read this verse clearly. <laughs> I wish they could read this right here. What things were written aforetime were written for our learning. What were they teaching us? Patience, discipline, affliction, humility, trials, the enemy coming against us. You know what makes the oak tree, don't, don't you? What makes it so strong when the winds, why is it so gnarled? and turned? Because the winds come in and it forces the roots to go down deep for the water source. And it's been through things and goes through things and it makes it strong to please itself. No, to please God. Even a, pa a pastor teacher who studies in 1 Thess Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, 1, Thessalonians, uh, 1 Timothy 5 and, and verse 17, brought out in Hebrews 13, verse 17, these pastor uh, verses in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, when we get the full preponderance of that, he, doesn't, he, he does not study for himself. He's not pleasing himself. He's not going there for an accumulation of knowledge. He's not. He goes, and he's not even going there for a message for the people. Not doing that. Otherwise, then you begin to live in approbation, lust. You rely on someone to be the source to build you up. And then you flatter, and it goes back and forth, and it's a approbation, lust, a, a personality rapport, has nothing to do with Christ. The pastor does it, because of his love for Christ. And if he has love for Christ, Christ has actuated that love in him through his obedience or his submitted will. These things are very, 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 very necessary. I thank God for what God has given us. And that was manifested on, us on this past Sunday for the depth that we have and it's not a comparison thing. It's got nothing to do with that because we know that in, that in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, it's not wise to compare ourselves. It's not. But that, but that wisdom will keep us humble so that we don't compare and so that we can be edifiers. But what we have, what we have through the Scriptures and through the precious Word of God and the preaching and teaching is absolutely incredible. And thank God that we have it. Now, we know that now it's through patience in Romans 15, verse 4, and comfort. Is there any comfort without patience? Is there? Experientially, there's none. There isn't any. There is none. No consolation, no comfort without patience. Why? Because we have patience and comfort of the Scriptures. Where, where is the source of it comes from? Where is the source of patience and comfort? Is it not the Scriptures? Is it not the Word of God? Then is it not Christ in a life-giving force in an experience of intimacy, of a fellowship, that even nothing in this earth, when we're rightly related to Him, 
can disturb or distract. Isn't that amazing? You know, the life that Christ has given us, and we're growing in it. We've been positioned in it. But that life in and of itself, nothing can disturb it or distract it. Nothing. So that we do know where those things would come from. Now here, now the God in verse 5 of Romans 15, the God of patience and consolation, grants you to be what? Like-minded, one toward another, according to Jesus Christ, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing, these truths that we have? So again, Romans 15, verse 4, is bringing out 1 Corinthians 10. We won't turn there in verses 6 to 11. We learn things. We're learning them. This is what God would have us to learn this morning. Here's what we're going to learn. We're going to learn this. So from our position, we're looking at this from our position with a submitted will. We're intreatable. We're disciplined. We plan the night before. <laughs> you know how we plan the day's work? Do you ever go to bed, you're thinking about your plan for the work? How about to come and hear the word of God? The most important thing ever. Because it has eternal value. Everything else about this world and this earth is going to pass away. That's why it says it in Matthew 24 and verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. That doesn't mean that the earth will not exist in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 4 and Isaiah 45 and verse 17 and Ephesians 3 and verse 21. It will never pass away. But the things of the earth that aren't of Christ will pass away. Even in the heavens... And what that's talking about is the angelic conflict, okay? Christ has ended it positionally, but experience, we're going to see it. It's over. Isn't that amazing? To understand the scriptures this way? That's Matthew 24, verse 35, and Isaiah 40, and verse 8. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word, hear God speak about his Son in us, in us and him. My word will not pass away. My word will not pass away. What are we occupied with? What do we get occupied with? No wonder Jesus said, occupy in Luke 19, 13. Occupy until I come. Occupy until I come. Because God is training us in time for our eternal reigning with him in an intimacy. And degrees of that intimacy are incredible. They are not earned, but they are received through being humbled and receiving the grace that will make them a present reality. And a present reality in time, when submitted to, goes into our eternal destiny in Christ. Okay, so this is Psalm 128 and verse 1. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Now we know is is. Is God on our side because we're in Christ? In Ephesians, the first chapter, those 23 verses, yes. If it, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, now Israel may say, and we can say that. How many Christians say this experientially because they don't know their position? He's against me. These circumstances and situations reveal that God is against me. No, Romans 8, verse 31, in the, in the New Covenant, and even in the Old, in Psalm 56 and verse 9. When my enemies come against me, then I'll cry out unto the Lord. Why? For this I know, what meaning I'm learning it. 
through every circumstance, every situation, every trial, every rejection, I'm learning God is for me. This I know. This is my proper experience for us in Christ. This we know, that God is for us in the, in the height of all people. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they had swallowed us up quick, really quick. Think of the things that we get swallowed up with, Christians. Think of the things that the enemy will bring so that our mind gets distracted by them. Oh, Oh, Lord, God help us. God help us. The distractions. Listen, again, if we had been swallowed up when their wrath was kindled against us. Where does the wrath of men, unsaved or, or even fleshly Christians, carnal, and that can be any of us, okay, when it's not proper anger, in Ephesians 4, verse 26, be angry and sin not. You know what that means? That's personal. That has to do with our own individuality. We don't make, we don't make anger, even when someone sins, we don't make that our anger. Okay? It's our own life. We get angry at whatever is not of Christ. Period. Then, in Ephesians 4, verse 27, we don't give place to the devil. We don't give him that topos, T-O-P-O-S, that particular place for his wrath to come in. When their wrath was kindled against us, then the waters had overwhelmed us. Oh, all the details of life, the circumstances, the situations. Oh, oh, before you go and before I go to bed at night, how about occupation prayer? When the enemy's raging, how about opening the book? And sometimes it takes a while. Remember in Daniel 10, 1 through 13, there was a prayer. It was a godly prayer, but there was a spiritual warfare. I experienced it. The last couple of days, the most intense spiritual, in my own life, the most intense spiritual warfare. And we are not to define ourselves by the warfare. Because then, then we make the battle ours, and in Exodus 14, 14, and in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 47, the battle is whose? It's the Lord's. And when it isn't, I am in the flesh and I battle things. I battle them. And here it is. The stream had gone over my soul. Listen. Then the proud waters had gone over our soul. What are the proud waters? We're going to see that, what these proud waters are. You know, for us as Christians, we have the flesh in us in Romans 8, 9, but we're not of it, but we can function in it, and that's the proud waters. Those are the proud waters. We will use the word to defend the flesh. That's what we'll do. And it will use it as a means whereby we feel we have the right not to forgive, even though we have been forgiven of everything in Ephesians 4 and verse 32. And that just becomes a device that comes between believers. Because remember, we're to have one mind. 
You know what it means when we read it? Didn't we read it in Romans the 15th chapter in those verses? If we have one mind, we're only going to have one mouth. And what, what is a mouth? Words come out. Thoughts come out. They're all the same. They're not divisive. They're not. The proud waters. Blessed be the Lord in verse 6 of Psalm 128 who has not given us a prey to their teeth. Oh, the enemy. Oh, the enemy. Oh, how necessary. What makes it so necessary? He's not given us over to the enemy and he'll use and, and, and he has teeth. He doesn't have any. He doesn't have any. He's been robbed of his power. But boy, he'll use someone else. He'll use someone else. He'll use his ministers in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 15 because he's an angel of light. But here, what we see very, very clearly in these scriptures, and we'll read this, the enemy with the teeth, our supposed teeth, because he is a what? A roaring lion. He's a roaring lion. Now listen, this is, this is 1 Peter 5, verse 5. This is always true in our relationships in a local assembly. This never changes. This is God's order. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Elder here especially has to do with an older man who has the gift, and I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking principles. Please understand that. Okay, He's an elder and one, especially, we're to esteem them highly. Look up the word esteem. <laughs> we're to esteem them highly for love's sake, for Christ's sake. That's First Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. We're to esteem them very highly. We wouldn't even think of rebuking them in First Timothy 5 and verse 20 and verse 1. We wouldn't even think of it. We wouldn't even think that we could use the word to try and correct an elder, because that's never our place. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. See, yeah, that's proper place in a local assembly. And be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to those, to the humble. Now, who are the humble? Again, 1 Peter 5 and verse 6, it doesn't say humble yourselves, it says be humbled. Because God's whole plan is designed to humble us. Because we have the flesh in us, and that's the proud waters that are ready to flow instantaneously. Humble yourselves. Be humbled, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. In due time. His time. Is anything too hard for God in Genesis 18 and verse 14? Nope. It returns to you at God's set appointed time. And then you will experience life. But before we do, we need patience and comfort so that we can be able to experience that life of which we are positioned in. And this makes it very, very vital. And so then, when, it went, then when we do that, we cast all our care, because we can't care for ourselves, we cast all of our care... And care, it just simply means there's anxiety, something the flesh holds on to. That's what it holds on to and makes it theirs. Makes trouble theirs. Makes division theirs. Makes it an unforgiving spirit theirs. That's what they hold on to. That's what the flesh does. 
the flesh and experience never receives forgiveness, can't receive grace because that's where it flows, and thereby don't function in the love that God is for the individual. Right? Casting all your anxiety upon him, for he cares for you. I mean, every single thing. And remember, the Greek means it this way. Think of every single thing all at once. You think of it. Think of it. Then roll it up and cast it on him. Because if you don't, in Psalm 37, verse 5, you're not able to roll all your care and responsibility on him. Thereby, you live in false desires. In Psalm 37, and verse 4, and when the Lord is not your delight, you live in a false desire. And we'll go back to that in Genesis 6, verse 5. In Genesis 8 and verse 21, the thought of man apart from Christ, the thought of the Christian functioning in the flesh is only evil continually. Every purpose, every design, every desire is only evil under the influence of evil. Evil. Instead of being under the hand of God, which is Christ, his hand's not shortened that it can't save. His arm is not strong enough that it can't deliver in Isaiah 59 and verse 1. But your sins... Our own sins and foolishness have separated him from us. Thank God he's waiting to be gracious because we're already positioned in him. But what must he do for that to be accomplished in our experience? Cast all your care upon him, your anxiety, because he does care for you. He does care. The proud water says he, don't. he doesn't. You must do something. That, that's the proud waters that go rolling over your soul. That's what rolls over us when we don't roll all those anxious, all those anxious things on him. Why? Because until we do, until there's no anxiety in the experience, we'll never be sober-minded, meaning we will never, nothing will make any sense. We will function in the foolishness and ignorance of pride, which is nonsense. Be sober. Be vigilant, be awake, and be aware. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, he roars. He doesn't have teeth. Nope. Christ knocked those out. He doesn't have power. He goes by lies, by projections, by false reasonings. Ephesians 6.11, they are his wiles, his methodia, his lies in John 8, verse 44 to develop in us and keep us in a stronghold through these false reasonings, these thoughts. In 2 Corinthians 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're mighty through God. To the pulling down of a stronghold. What's a stronghold? I'm held, held by a power, a lying power, that's way stronger than me. And that's why sin, in Romans 7.18 and 7.21, is always stronger than I will. You're trying to deal with things that have already been dealt with, but you refuse, or I would refuse, to be humble to receive the reality of what's been finished. I want to do it myself. You're not going to do it yourself, and you're not going to do it without a local assembly, and that local assembly must have a proper order. Honestly. It must have a proper order to function properly so that those that do come can actually receive. Actually receive it like we're doing this morning. Now, he's a roaring lion walking about. Remember what he did in Job 1, 6, and 7? 
when, when God instituted that whole thing, that whole thing with Job, that whole trial, he said, where have you been, Satan? Oh, I've been walking up and down, to and fro on all the earth. Is he everywhere present? No. Does he have a vast, invisible army? Absolutely. Does he know us in the flesh better than we know ourselves? Most assuredly. He has an evil, wicked genius. He walks about seeking whom he may devour. How will he devour us? Fear, worry, pride, arrogance. Circumstances and situations, he'll say, these are against you. Yes, they will seem to be against us when circumstances and situations are my guide and not Christ in the midst of those circumstances and situations. We have a guide, and we need guides, by the way, especially young people, especially old people that are still young and haven't been taught and function in a system that's designed for that individual Christian, that is Christ, to function even in opposition to himself. That's brought out in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 24, 25, and 26. 26. Now, here it is. Seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith. In the faith. All those truths about the person of Christ and what he's accomplished. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Our life and even our afflictions are not for ourselves. We're not to please ourselves. And even the, the reason for the afflictions is that we all in times in our growth experientially and we've been led astray. We've been seduced in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 away from the faith experientially, never positionally in 1 John 5, 18, the wicked one touches us not, but we've been seduced. So in Psalm 119 and 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. What, for the Christian, what do they go astray in? The flesh. Then it's legalism right away. It's a system right away. That was the prodigal's thoughts. The prodigal's thoughts all the way back. The enemy was giving him, based upon reasonings that he thought were his own, in 2 Corinthians 10.5, these reasonings and thoughts that were his own, were they really his? No, he didn't get right till he came back. He had to be humbled. Multitudes are coming back. I hear a lot are coming back in Burleson, Texas. I love it. They're coming back. They're coming back and they're being taught foundational reality, proper image. They're coming back. They're coming back. They're coming back. And that's what the prodigal did. He came back. Where do you have to come? To the Father's house. What's the Father's house today in this dispensation of grace, the church age? It's the local assembly. It's the local assembly where we constantly need to be taught. Constantly, all of us. So again, here, we see very, very clearly, and we can see it, we see it, that all these things are being accomplished through all of us. You're not all alone. <laughs> You're not all alone. 
We have all the promises. You know what? All the promises of God are already ours in Christ in 2 Corinthians 1.20. There's not one that's not been unfulfilled. And that pertains to each of us individually. Because everything that Christ did, he did for us individually. Again, that's brought out in Ephesians and, and Colossians. Brought out foundational things in 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. In 1 Corinthians, the twelfth chapter. But even beyond that, now we need to get what we're positioned in through Ephesians and Colossians so that we can even understand. We can even understand God. You see, it's very essential because the first thing that God's going to teach us is that long before we knew him, he knows us. And it's his knowledge about himself that knows us that draws us to himself. And gives us, listen, gives us the desire to know him. Because we cannot do that. He must, through grace, give us the desire to actually hunger and thirst. And I believe, and we said this before uh, with precious people, that it's even beyond being hunger. God has to allow Christians, through their own backslidings in the world system, in Jeremiah 2 and verse 19, because they act like the mule in 2.23 of the same chapter, he has to allow that to teach them so that it brings them back to a proper place. You see, we don't function properly until we function in our proper place in the local assembly. I wish we, no, there's not such a thing as private plans. I don't know where we get that. Well, we do know. We do know. And there's a specific order. And God never violates the honor of his order. 1 Samuel 2.30. He will not do that. If you lightly esteem me, that's his order. If I, if I lightly esteem God's order, am I lightly esteeming his nature? Yes. Then he lightly esteems that. It doesn't mean he doesn't love us, but it doesn't reach the experience because something's come in between. But here we can thank God for this in 10. But the God of all grace who's called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, and that's why it's in us in Colossians 1 and verse 27, after that you have suffered a while. Oh. Suffer a while for time. Average lifespan, Psalm 90, verse 10, 3 score, and 10, 78 by reason, 4, 80, roughly, average. And then instantly in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body, the minute we die, instantly in his presence, in a flash, in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, instantly we're in his presence. And we enter into our eternal reality and intimate fellowship with Christ, which is brought out in Revelation 2 and verse 17, where we have that hidden manna. Hidden manna. And what is hidden manna there? Obviously, it's Isaiah 45 and verse 3. I'll give you the treasures of darkness. I don't want the darkness. Well, there's certain treasures that can only be found there. Look at the life of Christ. There's treasures in darkness. Listen, and there's hidden riches in secret places. And in Isaiah 45 and verse 15, God hides himself from the pride of men. They're hidden. And when I function in the flesh, don't function in God's order. When I know what I should do and I don't do it. And God is hidden in my experience. And boy, when love doesn't flow, whoa, no wisdom. 
When love, when I'm not resting in love, wisdom does not flow. Can't be separated. Can't be separated. Neither, neither fulfill justice either. But is it my experience? No, now I think I have to do something. When love isn't flowing, because love and justice has been fulfilled in who I am in Christ positionally, but that needs to reach my experience. These times like this and this morning, these are these honestly, I believe they're they're amazingly critical. I just do. Because it's fellowship, not because <laughs> it's because the word is coming down from Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's our position, now it's entering into our experience. First Peter 5:10, but the God of all grace who's called us unto his eternal glory. By Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, I don't want to suffer. Well, then there won't be a depth of intimate fellowship because Paul said, I want to know him. First he said, I don't want to be found in my own righteousness. In in, uh, Philippians 3 and verse 9, what was his own righteousness? The flesh. An unsaved condition. But what's the difference between my flesh and an unsaved condition? They're both based upon a lie. Right? Right? After that you have suffered a while, I don't want to suffer. Well, he said, I don't want to be found in my own righteousness. But I want to know him. When I know him, I know it doesn't have a thing to do with me. It's not my righteousness, it's his. You see it all through the scriptures, scores of places. But Christ is our righteousness. We know, we, we know that. In 1 Corinthians 1.30 and Romans 14 and verse 17, there's no question about it. He is our righteousness. We're not trying to be righteous. We are righteous. We are righteous in a proper image. After that, you've suffered a while. Paul said, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. Now listen, this is positional truth. But for it to enter the experience, there's got to be a fellowship of suffering. That brings in the reality of Philippians. And here, I want to read this. This is in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 28. In nothing terrified by your adversaries. Why would it be nothing? Because we're functioning in God's love for us experientially. And outside of that, what does the enemy try to convince me in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 2? That you're nothing. Because what is in the flesh? Try as we might. What is it? Nothing. And is there any profit in it? No. In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 3, there's no profit in it. We see. In nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition. He's using what you're going through and what they're trying to do against you to reveal to them. See, (laughs) this is where you're headed. Perdition. Hell. Ultimately, with the beast and the false prophet in Revelations the 19th chapter, and then with Satan in finality in Revelations 26 through 8. And nothing terrified by your adversaries. What are you terrified by? Circumstances, situations, your bills, what am I going to do now? Which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of what? Deliverance, salvation. In that, listen, of God. You're going to deliver yourself? You're going to do anything about your circumstances and situations? God allowed them to come to show you and I that we can't, but that he's with us in them so that they don't guide us. They teach us what we can't do. But if that's all you're living in Christ, isn't it? You don't have a guide and you'll constantly have to be taught 
The same old lesson, helplessness and hopelessness in those circumstances and situations. Don't put your business ahead of coming to hear the word of God. Because if you do, your order is all wrong. And don't allow the enemy, because Christ came in John 15 and verse 22, don't allow him to give you a cloak or an excuse, because cloak there is excuse, because Christ has already come, and he's already given everything to us in opposition. Don't make excuses to live in a lack of love and a proper experience in an intimate fellowship and exchange, because that's what the enemy desires. Now, here, here we see this as we... Begin to wrap this up. And nothing terrified by your adversaries, okay? Which is an evident token of perdition to them. That's how we're to see it. Come, do all you want. God for us in Romans 8, 31 to 39. God for us. Does it even matter what's against us? Does it? In the flesh, will it? Yes. In Christ, doesn't matter. It's done. It's finished. John 19, 30, it's finished. We are finished product in Christ. Is it my experience? Is it my experience? Don't settle for less. And again, don't let the enemy convince you it's too deep. It's too deep. Don't let him convince you. Part of that, part of that depth is, is literally God using it to keep us humble. And that means all of us. Because none of us know anything like we ought to in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, knowledge puffs up, declarative knowledge. I can't tell you how many young people, oh, they want to get the Greek, they want to get knowledge because they're proving themselves and they're exalting themselves above the body, above the teachers, the pastors and teachers that God has given them and will not change his mind about those that are the guides for them that he chose. Oh God, help us. Hebrews 13, 17. And then if we make too much of them, then God in his love for the, for the leader and for them that make him more than Christ, he takes them home. And that's 13, 7 of Hebrews. You can study that out. And you can see that in the original languages. Listen, here's the issue with us. Here it is. In Psalm 128, you read those eight verses, Right? He, the enemy wants to convince you of his teeth. He doesn't have any. He'll, but he'll use, he'll use others. He'll use them for that. He'll use it. And so what happens? The enemy, when the enemy comes in like a flood in Isaiah 59, 19, what does God do? He lifts up a standard. What if I'm not taught the standard? Do I have it? What's a standard? That's revealed in Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Christ defeated every single demonic force, Satan and all his demonic force. That's brought out in Matthew 16, 18. The gates of hell mean all the martial forces of the evil one amount to nothing when Christ is in the experience. That's what it means. And so all those forces, listen, is anything too hard for God in Genesis 18, verse 14? No. But how many Christians, and I saw it again on Sunday, how many Christians, and I'm not saying that, that they don't love God and God doesn't love them, but I, boy, get stuck in a system. Get a little truth, go right back to the system. Get, get a little bit of truth. And then you read the parable of the seeds in, in Luke the 8th chapter, read the parable of the seeds in Matthew the 13th chapter, go right back into it. 
That's why we need to pray. That's why we need to pray for our loved ones, our friends. And first and foremost, for our body members. First and foremost. That's where it starts. And then it goes out from there. Nothing is too hard for God. But can Christians live in the unconsciousness of danger? <laughs> what makes us think that this, this, I mean, this evil world system, there's no danger in the world? It's loaded with it. We're in it, but thank God we're not of it. And it doesn't touch us. We're the dot, God's a circle. That's brought out in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 15. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18. And Romans 8 and verse 28. All things are for our sakes, all things are of God, and they all work together for the good to them that love God. But if I love God, did he love me first experientially? In the, yes. Then we love in 1 John 4 and verse 19. But when I function as a Christian through bad choices, through bad teaching or a lack of it or refusal of it, then I function in unconscious danger and what is lost immediately? All my freedom in Christ. Some, another authority, Revelations 2, 4 to 8, another authority comes in. The Nicolaitans, another authority comes in and takes precedence over my soul. But what? His, only in his presence is safety. Only in his presence. And God is in the business of waiting to be gracious in Isaiah 30, verse 18, to rescue his people, those that are, uh, those that are his in Christ. He wants to re and, and rescue and bring us out of the subtlety of the enemy. In Genesis 3 and verse 1, he uses subtlety to, add, to bring in desires that are not of God. No wonder hope deferred makes the heart sick. Because those are false desires in Proverbs 13 and verse 12. Hope, hope deferred, stretched, and put off makes the heart sick. But when the desire, what desire? God's desire in Psalm 37 verse 4. And if I don't have proper desires, what do I have? What am I functioning in? Unconscious danger. Or even rebellious. But his, in his presence is safety. You notice what happened. When, what happened on his way back the prodigal on his way back in Luke the 15th chapter in verses 11 to 32, on his way back, his father was there waiting to be gracious to him. And that's what God is, waiting to bring his back. I just see it. He's bringing Christians, young people especially, and young people that are old, but they haven't grown. They haven't got away from youthful lusts. You can be 80 and have it in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22. Get occupied with everything else. But God rescues his people from the, from the deceit, craft, and subtlety of the enemy. Because what do we realize in his presence? That God is for us and that the enemy truly does not have power against us who are in Christ. He doesn't. He has no power. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. He's dealt with it in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 to 15. And Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9, all the way to 18. Because we have this great high priest. And so here, here it is. He has craft and subtlety. He wants to cause ruin in our experience so that we don't function in our position. And the enemy that we have, boy, we need to know how evil he is. We lose sight of that. 
Honestly, when we lose sight of what we have in Christ, when we lose sight of our precious Lord, then what do we lose sight of? How evil, how subtle, how spiteful the enemy is and how he lays snares for us. Traps. Proverbs 29, 25. We can see it clearly. And what? To hold us there. Strongholds. To keep us held. How many people, Christians, men and women, held in strongholds, pornography, drinking, drugs, thoughts, all of these things. And they're held in a stronghold. Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're mighty through God. Listen, sin's more powerful than my will and yours any day. It does, nothing even makes any sense. Nothing. Not a single thing makes any sense. And he wants to keep us there. And he wants to convince us that we're unable to help ourselves. Well, God needs to do that. One tries to say, the enemy tries to say, you can't do it, but here, take this thing. At least you'll get away and you'll escape it. When God has us there in that circumstance and situation to prove to us, to show us, they were unable to help ourselves out of that circumstance or situation because we're weak. Listen, we're weak. And we're like silly little boys and girls when we don't function in Christ. We act silly. We act stupid. Look up the word. You'll see stupid. Stupefied. Look at it. And then God comes in and gives us the opportunity and says, here, here's your relief. Here's the word. Here's the counsel. But you've got to come and get it. The man is coming down in the morning and that's where it's most effective, by the way. That's why these mornings here are most effective. Because the manna comes down in the morning. I want to make that crystal clear. But you've got to get up. And before you get up, if you weren't disciplined the night before, whew, you're not going to want to get up. You're going to blow it off. You're going to blow it off. I don't have to do it. Some think even where they are, they have enough word. They don't have to come. Okay. <laughs> all right. For all of us. But he teaches us because God appears for our relief. And then he's the only one that can break that snare, that trap, that gin in Proverbs 29, 25. He breaks it. And then he turns, listen to this, and I'm going to close with this. He turns the counsel of the enemy into what it really is. It's foolishness. And I'm going to just share this and we're going to stop. This is, I'm going to read from Proverbs This is Proverbs, the 18th chapter, 1 and 2. It says, through desire, notice that, through desire, a man having separated himself, right, seeks and intermeddles with all wisdom. Right? He intermeddles with all wisdom. And that, what does it make? A fool, in verse 2, has no delight in understanding. Too busy in his, in his own self with formed opinions of obstinance that the enemy's created in the experience. And you can do that in a Christian. Cantat's a position. goes after the experience. Every single time. But that his heart, his mind and emotions may discover itself. <laughs> and I saw that word and I looked it up in the Hebrew. That word intermeddles is the, is the Hebrew word galah. G-A-L-A. And look what it means. Obstinate. It means obstinate. Look what this is. 
This is the constant temptation for us. This is the constant, constant temptation. And we can see this crystal clear. This is 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter. 1 Samuel 15. In verse 21 it says, But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. Now, those things may not be bad in themselves. We've said this and taught this so many times. Love not the world in 1 John 2.15. Neither the things that are in the world. They may not be bad in themselves, but they can be used to separate you from him through your occupation. Thinking, God's sakes, thinking that anything about us is for ourselves. Well, we better read Philippians chapter 2, verses 3, and go right down to verse 21. Follow it with Christ as our pattern in 1 Peter 2 and verse 22. But what we see there is this. They should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord your God. God gives us things not to live and please ourselves. He gives them to us because they become the opportunity to give back to him. That's what 2 Corinthians 4 verse 15 even says. Redound means to go right back to the glory of God. So whatever you have, is it used to glorify God? And if it does, that's a proper blessing. If it's not, it's called lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, in 1 John 2 and verse 16, and Galatians 3 and verse 6. Right? Destroyed, that it might unto the Lord your God in Gilgal. I wish we had the time to go into the types. Gilgal is a human spirit. When we function in that, nothing from the soul gets in there, and it needs to be separated in Hebrews 4.12. And Samuel said, But has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Oh my God. And to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as, idol- is as iniquity and idolatry because you've rejected the word of the Lord experientially for us will never be rejected positionally. He has also rejected you from reigning over your circumstances and situations with Christ. That word gala, it means obstinate. Listen, obstinate. What does it mean to be obstinate? It's a fixedness. An opinion or resolution that refuses and cannot be shaken. Will God do some shaking in Hebrews 12, 25 to 29? Yes, he will. Notice how it says he's going to, he already shook the earth. That's prophecy being worked out. He's going to shake the heavens too, by the way. That's our position in Christ. He's going to shake things that are in our experience that don't have a thing to do with our position. He's going to shake them out. Then when God starts doing the shaking, we think it's time to leave or change the location. Hmm. Hmm. Well, their refusal. They cannot be shaken. It's a refusal that can't be shaken. I'm not going to be, I'm not doing it. It's a resistance in James 4, 6 through 7. It's a, it, can, it can be done, but it's extreme great difficulty. The older you get, the harder it gets, folks. 
That's why it's so necessary to bear the yoke in your youth in Lamentations 3 and verse 27 and in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1 to begin to know your Creator in the days of your youth. And that's proper teaching and preaching. Boy, what we have is so amazing. Boy, what we have is so incredible. What is it? It's an adherence. It's, it's, a, it's a firm unreasonableness. 2 Corinthians 10.5. It's adherence. It's a strong adherence. It's an opinion. And what is an opinion? It's an opinion. It's without proper thoughts, proper words, or that you don't have Christ in your experience. Then you function in the purpose in Genesis 6 and verse 5 and 8 and verse 21. And then you have a system. Oh, how the enemy gets multitudes trapped in a system. Multitudes. They'll get some truth and go right back into it. Because we need continual preaching and teaching to keep out in our flesh legality. Because as long, listen, as long as legality, servitude to the what we think is the law, when the law is tolerated, the flesh has to be tolerated. And then you call it fellowship. It's not. It's, a, it's this purpose or a system. Satan will give you a system. Oh, there's so many. They're called denominations, by the way. He'll give you a system to keep you from going. You know, he can't touch your position in terms of salvation, but he's going to keep you so far from what is yours in Christ. And he does it through a system which keeps you fixed in certain opinions. Satan's kingdom's divided against itself. That enters into a lot. A fixedness that will not yield, will not submit, or be persuaded. It refuses to be humble and entreatable. It denotes a fixedness of resolution which is not to be vindicated under the circumstances. It means it's stubbornness. It's pertinacity. It's persistency. It's a fixedness. This is the flesh that's in us that we're not of. It's a fixedness that will not yield to application. Or in other words, it refuses positional truth to enter into the experience. And the enemy uses it to oppose themselves. In 2 Timothy 2, you ever try and win someone that opposes himself? You ever try to? Maybe it would be better to pray, right? A fixedness that will not yield to application. It's a fixedness that will refuses to be shaken even when God shakes it, you know? And finally, if it's a believer, in his love, he will take us home early, by the way. There is no question about that because he loves us. The only thing that makes any sense the only thing that makes any sense is Christ. The, everything else outside of that is nonsense. Anything out of an experiential love relationship in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, it just doesn't make, there's no sense involved in it. And the enemy comes against us. And God allows that like he did in Job. We need to see that. And that's why the, God will only allow the enemy to do what will lead to what God will undo. Because he's the only one that can do it. He loves us so deeply. So very, very deeply. And again, I'll have up on the, on the website soon these, these uh, messages that I have prepared on prophecy so that we don't miss those. But again, God told me again, this was, this was my necessity this morning. 
and I just wanted to share it because I'll tell you, the, God had to let the enemy have at it with me just so he could put me to this place to teach me, give me counsel to show me and to share it. So Father, we do thank you for your intense love, your incredible, amazing love for us. Father, thank you that you're always waiting to be nothing but gracious and even your chastisement. No one deserves to be loved by you. It has to flow through grace. And that's what makes even chastisement so loving and gracious and merciful. Because that, uh, that, that mercy that we need as a result of mercy is just, you know, it does away with misery. And that's the, what we, that's the prophet that we get in the flesh to lead us to a throne of grace so that God can deal with the misery through this merciful and great high priest in, in Hebrews 4 and verse 14, so that, and we know it, so that we can come to the throne of grace, but we won't come. What does it take for him to make us come? I tell you, I love what's, I do love what is going on in Burleson, Texas. I do, because I see God bringing back his children to a foundation. He's teaching them foundational truths, and boy, he wants to build on that foundation all this edificational truth. I see it, I love it. I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for what God is doing here, what he plans to do, what he's going to do. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.